Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 190. In this episode, we're talking about Christianity as a way of life with Professor Kevin Hector. Professor Kevin Hector is Naomi Shenstone Donnelly, Professor of Theology and of the Philosophy of Religions at the University of Chicago Divinity School, and he's the author of the new book that we're excited to discuss in this episode, Christianity as a Way of Life, a Systematic Theology, published by Yale University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Reverend Daniel Parham and me, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So, Daniel, this conversation with Professor Hector uh, was just a, a delight. We had quite a wide-ranging conversation as he you know, articulates the role of various practices as being kind of central to Christianity as a way of life. Uh, we talk about what those practices are, and we hear from him uh, about you know why he why he wanted to write this book to sort of situate a systematic theology within the Christianity that is lived out in our churches as opposed to perhaps the Christianity that's often kind of articulated in in sort of the ivory towers uh, but really kind of making it practical and um expressing it in a way that uh is is true to lived Christian experience so what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Professor Hector I think our time with uh, Professor Hector was one in which uh, he gave clarity that the totality of Christianity has foundationally practices that lead to a holistic view of what goodness is um, and uh, how that radiates out into the greater world and our understanding of the implications that Christianity brings uh, before we even enter into a clearly theological way of life. Uh, it's just more this best practice of what God's goodness is to the world. Um, and, and, and so I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciated him seeing the contextualization of that too, uh, and, and how that eschatologically has a greater vision, um, but it's formed in our day-to-day practice, right? That, that clearer understanding of the eschatological vision that God has for the faith um, is rooted in this earnest attempt uh, in um, the pressing realities of a fallen world, uh, the earnest attempt to be good, uh, but understanding that goodness is framed by God, right? And not by our practices, but, but our practices inform that goodness. So it was good to hear him articulate that in a way that I think any reader step, stepping into that text uh, will excitedly uh, see it displayed throughout the book. Yeah, and it was a lot of fun to specifically dive into some of those practices in particular, like eating together, corporate singing, and then to think about uh, how these Christian practices flow into things like activism, which was just a really enjoyable part of the conversation. And if you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Professor Kevin Hector. Well, Professor Hector, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an, a joy to be here. Well, we're really excited to talk about your new book, Christianity as a Way of Life, a Systematic Theology, published by Yale University Press. Could we start by hearing a little bit about what is the thesis of this book? What are you trying to set out and accomplish? Yeah. Uh, so the thesis is more or less right there in the title. Uh, I'm trying to understand Christianity as a way of life, which is to say, as a as at its core, um, really bound up with some practices that are designed to change the way we see the world and see the people around us and change the the way we act in the world uh, in ways that will reflect more of our devotion uh, to God and also that will help us be a little bit wiser in the way we uh, conduct ourselves in the world. So that's, yeah, the most basic thesis is that uh, and it's a systematic theology, which is the 
<laughs> the after colon part of the title, uh, in the sense that to get us to, to understand these practices, you have to understand them in light of um, an old way of life, the way of the world, I call it. Uh, you have to also understand how we're delivered from sin so that we could enter into this transformative path and what the, the, the end or the telos is of this way of life. So that's basically the thesis, trying to understand Christianity as a way of life. Dr. Hector, uh, living, I, I guess, in kind of this continued post-Christian world uh, where uh, wisdom is seen very subjectively, and mm. even though there's a very much a um, hypercritical lens towards all thinking in terms of, of what is the guidance or practice of wisdom, like, how do you divide up your 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 writing into understanding how that good way becomes practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, by the way, before I keep going, uh, you all are both being extra uh, hospitable toward me by calling me doctor and professor. But I I would welcome you calling me Kevin if if you're comfortable with that. Uh, so with respect to your question, I mean, I think so. I don't. I, I, I issue a promissory note right at the outset of the book, right? So I say the book is going to try to understand Christianity and make an argument that it contributes something to wisdom, how to conduct oneself well in the world. Um, and then I say, but I can't really make that argument until the end. And it was also a promissory note that I was issuing to myself, right? Like, because I, I kept telling myself, don't forget, you have to land this plane somehow, right? Like you're going to get to the end and you need to figure out how are you going to make the claim that this is recognizable as wisdom. And given the, the way I've laid this out, it needs to be recognizable as wisdom, not just to Christians, right? So hopefully Christians would be able to see how there is something wise in a way of life dedicated to things like prayer and wonder and looking for the image of God in others. But how do I make the case that this would be wise for people who, who don't share, you know, a Christian's devotion to God and the God of Jesus? Um, and that's honestly, that was one of the really tricky things to do in the book. So um, by the end, I do make the case that um, you, I, I do think you can see that a life that includes practices that, that can do certain things for us, like the practice of prayer, how it can... Uh, it kind of it can it can act in a way to detach us from the immediate grip of the things that we care about um, in such a way that we can then receive them as gifts in such a way that we don't have to be quite as tempted to control them in such a way that we can receive their goodness, but not in such a way that we then become susceptible to um, all of the vicissitudes and risks and uh, temptations that can be involved in are, are really caring about things. And so I try to make the case uh, for each of these practices that a, a life that includes them uh, is better off, all things considered, than one that doesn't have something like them. And then I suggest that they, they feed off of each other or they reinforce each other, right? And so um, if you have a practice of vocation, it will help you learn how to love others or know how to pursue a, a kind of activism. Um, if you if you have a, a a practice of prayer, it will help you to um, be able to release um, your self centeredness. Right, you won't have to make everything turn out right and make everything be okay, and therefore be tempted to instrumentalize others. Right, so I think they feed off of each other, and that helps us see how it's not just individual practices that are wise, but they 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 add up to something. These practices add up to something, and then I suggest that um, if this is a good way of life, and it does point us to God, that there's a kind of uh, practical argument in there for the rationality then of devoting yourself to this god so it's a really tricky thing I, I i'm interested to know if you all think i pulled it off but it was it was one of the bits that i was uh most concerned about all along the line 
Mm. Yeah. So the idea that uh, Christianity is worthwhile because it works, in other words, perhaps. Now, you mentioned uh, the practice of prayer as well as the practice of uh, vocation. Could you tell us a little bit about the other practices that you discuss in the book? Yeah, thanks. Um, there's quite a few. So in so there's they're grouped together. So um, and there's a chapter about just how we are reoriented to God. Uh, and so practices there include eating and singing together, uh, the practice of friendship, the practice of becoming one with other uh, Christians and practices of imitation, both where we mimic others and where we uh, admire others and try to emulate them. Um, my argument is that all of those things are pretty crucial in reorienting someone's life toward God. Uh, then in the there's a chapter on how we're, our being in the world is transformed. Uh, and there I do talk about prayer and the practice of attention and wonder, um, the practice of laughter and lament I treat together, and then the practice of vocation. Uh, and then there's a chapter on how our being with others should be oriented toward God or reoriented. And there I talk about beneficence. That's kind of a weird word. Maybe I should say what I mean by that. Uh, beneficence as doing something good for others, right? Very simply, where it's not necessarily done um, out of a a particularly good will for the other person, where you're really invested in their well-being, you love them as yourself, and therefore you do good things for them, but rather you do good things for them for the sake of becoming more invested in them and in their well-being. Uh, I already mentioned looking for the image of God in others. That's a pretty, I spent a lot of time on that. I think that's a, a pretty decisive practice in trying to learn how to uh, orient ourselves toward others and how we should relate to others talk about forgiveness, and I talk about activism. Uh, and then I also talk about things like the practice of baptism, the practice of hearing God's word, the practice, um, yeah, the practice of of re-narrating one's life in light of the gospel. So there's quite a few other practices as well, but those are, I think, the, the main ones. In order to, I, I guess, the juxtaposition of of Christianity is the, you know, the way of the world, right? And I know you cover... Mm. A chapter along those lines. Having grown up as a Pentecostal Christian, um, worldliness was talked about often in my yeah. formational experience, right? Yeah. These are the things of the world. You should abstain from the things of the world. But uh, that that context can be nebulous, right? Yeah, Removed yeah, sure. from an understanding of like the foundation of what, what are we referencing as the way of the world? Can you, mm -hmm. can you touch it a little bit more on kind of the bedrock by which you you kind of define that way? Yeah, that's great because this is, I mean, there's nothing but landmines, <laughs> right? Uh, and this is this is yet another one. You all have a, a good sense for this. And so, I mean, one of the tricks, as you surely know, is how do you talk about worldliness in what we can call the bad sense without being otherworldly or anti-worldly, right? And I I strongly want to resist both of those things. And so I, I I try to be really clear and I keep putting the world in quotation marks just as a way of signaling that I mean this in almost a technical sense. Um, but the world here in the way that it, 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 it has to do with treating anything other than God the way we should treat God, right? And so we should love God first, and love other things toward the end of loving God or as included in our love for God. We should seek our security in God and put our ultimate trust in God um, and trust other things as sort of secondary causes in that. Um, and we should we should take our bearings from God. We should uh, treat God as the standard by which we make judgments rather than some kind of standard. I mean, I, so I talk about the way we can be tempted to take our own standards as the standard by which we judge everybody or everything, or we can take our group's standards and use that to judge everybody and everything. And, and the problem with that is that that's, that's a, a role that should be played by God, right? And so things become the world in the problematic sense when anything other than God is put in a place that God should have in, in our lives. 
Can you talk with us a bit about how this framework that you're offering us helps to mitigate some of the contemporary ills that we see uh, in relation to uh, Christianity in Western society, uh, particularly in an American context? So, for example, mm-hmm. what I'm what I'm sort of wondering is, would you sort of diagnose uh, sort of some of the problems with uh, contemporary Christianity is that it does not practice these things, um, does not sufficiently practice these things, doesn't practice them well, um, or that it has a kind of impractical sort of approach to uh, what it means to be Christian? That's a great question. I mean, I if if I'm ever going to deal with a question like this, truthfully, I should probably talk about the ways I am uh, falling short and falling into temptation and why that's the case. Um, Because it's never their problem if it's not also my problem in some ways. But um, do I think the ills of contemporary Christianity are particularly due to a failure to practice some of these things? So that's a good question. The very last paragraph of the book I try to address at least a little bit of that because I do think that one of one sort of fundamental problem is um, looking at others with unloving and therefore distorting eyes. Um, And one of the most important things for Christians now or ever is to work really hard at seeing others with loving eyes. I think we've got some temptations now that might make this worse. Um, I think being in bubbles often makes things worse. I think like social media is fun, but it tempts us to see others as abstractions or as exemplars of categories. I think that's really trouble. I think it's really hard to... Uh, you have to do a lot of imaginative work to see somebody's, you know, like their little thumbnail picture of themselves. That's all you get of them, along with, you know, like 25 words about who they are, like we, as opposed to, you know, my neighbor who I actually know, who I run into, who, who I, they, they're, they're a whole world to me. Well, everyone's a whole world. Um, uh, Everyone is a whole world who is beloved of God, but getting to the point where you have eyes to see that and you can treat people accordingly is really hard. And so when I fail, it's almost always for that reason, because I'm failing at that. And I think I think that's true of a lot of people. Um, I don't think that's the only issue. I mean, I do talk about when I talk about the way of the world, I do talk about the fact that um, we can we can we can be tempted to take our sort of group as the standard by which to judge everything, and I I think Christians are as susceptible or more to that temptation than almost anybody else, right? And so I I think a lot of Christians are needing to work on resisting identifying their group's uh, standard as the standard of what the kingdom of God is or what God wants. Um, When people, you know, when people start subordinating Christianity to their heritage or to uh, their, their sort of desire, you know, their, 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 their patriotism, that's that's a real concern. Um, I happen to think Christianity offers us really good resources to resist that. But just because they're there <laughs> doesn't mean uh, that we're using them well. I mean, I, I talk about the fact that this is sort of a Weberian ideal type. Like I talk about how things are supposed to be by Christian's lights. It's not necessarily how things are. Right. And so we can better see maybe some of the ways that we're falling short, Um, but we have to do the work. So I I, that's a long answer to a really good question. And it's one that um, I mean, 
you can't write a book like this without feeling pretty deeply how it's going to challenge you. And so that's why I started with me. Appreciate that, uh, that, that honesty, right? And, and, and the challenge of scripture is to look at, look at scripture, uh, not subjectively, but to look mm. at scripture with formational subjectivity, I guess, in mind, right? Mm. Like you have to insert yourself into the text mm. mm-hmm. in order to understand your place within the, right, the totality of the text. And, and so it's, it's hard, uh, hard to navigate through that, I think, in, and yeah. in the life that is called being a Christian, right? Where uh, you are not the object of the text, but you are being subjected by the text. Mm. Um, and, and so even when you think about the the practices that you've talked about, I, I guess maybe even coming a little higher off the print of the book, like mm. what, what would you say is like some sub- subjective ways and by which we should look into the practice? Or I guess better yet, a as you think about the practices, what are the ways that you think are foundational for for someone at any stage of their Christian life uh, or aspiring Christian life to look towards as kind of the primary practices by which all mm-hmm. the other practices are built upon? Hmm. I like this question a lot. Um, so it seems to me that repentance and imitation combined have a kind of pride of place uh, in the way I lay things out. So repentance, so the way I lay it out, right? So you, you, you devote yourself to God, but um, you're not yet who you want to be. And so there's this turning, you know, pulling away from your old formation and leaning into a kind of new formation. Um, and this is just the life of repentance. And, and then the sort of cheat code for that um, is imitation, I think, right? So even just being around people who are further along or who, I mean, what, who speak Christian more fluently than you do, who can live Christianly, who have the, you know, there's there's folks who've been doing this for a long time and they've got a kind of discernment and a kind of wisdom a lot of times that it's just in their bones, right? And they, they've earned it. And so being able to be around people like that um, and being around, you know, like it, it we grow so much faster when we have examples and when we are part of a group who um, we can kind of be picked up in the current and not have to <laughs> think we're doing it all on our own or all from scratch. So um, off the top of my head, at least, I think I would, I'll nominate repentance and imitation, although I'm sure I will kick myself later for this. <laughs> I really like this um, conversation about how we might sort of rank or prioritize uh, these practices. <laughs> uh, in my own sort of reflection on some of the ones that that you address, um, I'm particularly taking to eating together. Um, oh, okay. uh, not only because I'm, you know, something of a foodie, but uh, I also, <laughs> uh, um, I've also just finished a book on uh, alcohol in the Bible, uh, alcoholic uh-huh. beverages, I should uh-huh. say. So wine, beer, et cetera, feasting. Yeah. Um, that'll come out next year uh, with uh, with Zondervan and um, my my thinking about the Eucharist in particular. I've always mm. I've always uh, thought of it as sort of like the central Christian practice, uh, primarily because if we think about its relationship to baptism, baptism is not sort of like discernible, right? In terms of like the the initial instantaneous action is, of course, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. as we sort of walk around and live our lives, it's not like oh, you know, that's a baptized Christian, right. you know, right. so to speak. But but the idea of like regularly gathering together and eating uh, mm-hmm. is sort of like this sort of central visible you know um reckoning of this like diverse group of people that come together uh and and literally put things in their bodies together yeah. right which yeah. is a very kind of uh intimate uh sort of uh uh act act uh, um, practice and so i'm i'm just i would just love uh, to hear more about uh your reflections on eating together specifically and what we uh sort of learn about that in this way of life that is christianity yeah, thanks for the invitation on that. And 
I would love to hear more of what you have to say about this. Uh, but I, I'll go first and then you can correct me and <laughs> say more. Uh, but I mean, so if I'm being honest, the th I've always thought sharing a meal together, communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, I've always thought that was important. Um, but it was in spending time with immigrant communities that in some ways it lit up for me um, in ways that it hadn't before. And so uh, being together with, um, so I go to a church that is, uh, has a lot of immigrants in it um, and hanging out with them and getting a sense of how much it matters to be able to get together with others and eat some of the food from home, um, right? Having tastes of home when you're in a place where that's pretty rare and uh, you can just be together with other people who get you, who share the same homeland and share some of the same customs. And you could even, you know, depending on which kind of community it is, but you can speak your heart language maybe. Like this is just so important. And no wonder that communities are so important largely in among immigrants, right? Um, and so it struck me, um, yeah, like I said, it just kind of lit up what it means for Christians to uh, eat together and sing together. That's another thing that immigrants often do. Um, yeah, and so that that's really the lens that I used to try to think further about the importance of uh, sharing food, as well as there's lots of pretty interesting research about what happens when people eat together, right? Even if you're strangers, the mere fact that you're eating together makes you trust each other more, makes you more ready to collaborate, makes you feel a connection to people. Food, I mean, it is, it's magical. And so, yeah, wanting to highlight some of those things. And I do get away from I mean, the standard approach to this in a systematic theology would be to talk about real presence, right? And to talk about, um, you know, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, uh, all the different, you know, memorialism, all the different varieties, and then adjudicate among them and come in on that. And I think that stuff's super interesting. But in terms of the, the, the shaping um, quality of eating together, I didn't want that to get lost. And so I, I tried to draw out some of those uh, qualities of, yeah, how how we're knit together by eating together um, and how it should be kind of like getting a taste of home. Um, it should be a taste, you know, a foretaste of the, the, the meal that we look forward to eating together again when we can finally go home. Um, so those are the things I tried to to highlight in there. But again, I now I, I I'm eager to hear some of your reflections on this. Well, I definitely don't want to detract from uh, this conversation about your book uh, and uh, the other practices and things that we uh, we still have to get to. But I just really appreciate what you what you shared there and thinking about how we are knitted together by by eating together. You know, it it reminds me of when I studied in Scotland and we celebrated Thanksgiving with all of our mm -hmm. Scottish and European friends uh, in in um, you know with everybody kind of bringing their own sort of dishes that they would like to make, uh, regardless of whether they were traditional or whatever, and just yeah, yeah. just sharing that together um especially especially uh the first the first thanksgiving there it was just uh it was just so lovely especially as yeah. a way to to get uh to get to know them and that was a, a community mm. that i was regularly eating with in my postgraduate accommodation and so many people um in my divinity school even i didn't quite get to know as much as i did the people that i ate with uh yes. you know yeah. regularly uh and and there just is something about that um and not just you know i mean i you know i framed it in terms of the eucharist but 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 you know not just the eucharist um but also just like hosting dinners and also being hosted you know the practice of being a good guest as well as uh being <laughs> yes, a good host a good uh yeah and and so i i i, I really uh, appreciate thinking about this more broadly the idea of eating mm -hmm. together um and and sort of the the value of of 
of food and 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 good food and food that reminds you of home and and these sorts of things. Uh, I just really love that. Um, and I know you know Daniel and I are West Coast people living in the Midwest now. And you know when we go when we go home, it's like you know we got to go to In and Out. We got you know what I mean. There's like <laughs> all these all these places that are like high on our list of things we have to do to you know re-experience home. And so just really uh-huh. just really appreciate um, that that reflection. Uh, I think that's uh, uh, yeah really beautiful. Thanks for that. Yeah, I would just say my my anecdote, anecdotal commentary along the lines of John, uh, you know, recently moving to the Midwest and then uh, within a month's time going back to the West in Montana, mm. however, and then uh, with some student leaders at my university and experiencing their perspective of what I would consider authentic Mexican food from a Western perspective, right, yeah. West Coast perspective, and they're from the Midwest and just the context of cheese difference and how yes. they were bemoaning the cheese <laughs> that was in this, what I would say is authentic Mexican food. Uh, and it was just this banter, right, that they were having. And the banter was not divisive at all, right? I, I'm I'm perceiving it from the West Coast saying, no, this is true, authentic Mexican food. They're perceiving uh-huh. something different from the Midwest. Uh, and ultimately the food was irrelevant because the experience of being together uh yeah. is what we'll we will remember uh-huh. uh, but it also reminded us of the different perspectives that can come together at a table and it could almost be a wash right in those moments uh because of the unity that you're, you're talking about that it is displayed when you're sitting in one place and communing together and i, I think even highlighting too like the necessity of food also shows the necessity of humanity right because we mm. come to the table with this one thing in mind is that we we might desire to eat or prefer certain meals but all of us need sustenance right and so it, it also reminds us of our our, our desperate need and humanity and, and, and i think there's so much uh theological connotation there right mm-hmm. that we can can think through and i think you're, you're likely drawing out um by that practice as well um together mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just helpful reminder. Uh, even while I still arguably say that um, cheese blend on the West Coast is probably uh, more authentic, uh, but but that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant to to us being together at the table. <laughs> One of the cool things. So Bonaventure, this ties in with both of with what both of you are saying. But Bonaventure talks about a, an end times feast where basically everybody brings their specialty, and the feast wouldn't be complete if everybody didn't bring their specialty right it's such a great picture of right because like you know like sometimes there's a lot of pressure like oh shoot i gotta like bring a special but like i love the idea like you know like different people make you know like everybody has their own way of making mole or everybody has their own like everybody i know has their own beans and rice recipe and they're all a little different everybody changes it up a little bit but there's so much variation and there's the richness right i love metaphors of abundance and that's one of my favorite metaphors of abundance um so yeah i i we can we can uh we can have our favorite kinds of cheese blend but <laughs> some people even like that liquidy cheese but all of it can be part of some kind of glorious dish in the, in the eschatological feast. <laughs> uh, I, I love that. I love that. I'll be bringing uh, baklava. That's my uh, my go-to. Do you make baklava? Yeah, yeah. I, so I teach. It's teach... like all the little layers of. Yes, like, yes, little... yes. You really? Yeah. yeah. So I so wow. for, when I teach Greek, um, uh, second semester Greek, I always uh, have have what I call the Greek Olympics, where everybody um, <laughs> competes in various games. It's sort of a. Uh-huh sort of a positive and incentivizing way of doing a final exam. But, uh, but one of the sort of competitions, if you like, is, um, is, is food, Greek food. So, so Uh everybody, everybody, you know, makes homemade hummus or pita or, you know, falafel, like what, like whatever, you know, comes to mind as kind of like broadly Mediterranean or hopefully distinctively Greek. Right. Uh, Uh But, but I always, I always make uh, um, baklava and, and it's, it's good fun. It's good fun. I even did it the the year uh, during COVID when we couldn't be together, uh, oh, uh, and so uh, I ate a piece for everybody in the class, which was not a good decision. Uh, 
that's honestly like i bet you get the best student evaluations ever though oh <laughs> uh, well i don't know i don't know about that i mean we have fun we have fun it's a good time it's a good time um but i i'm curious about another practice um um the the singing together the corporate singing so you 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 brought that in just now with eating together mm-hmm. i'm i'm curious to hear more about that what does that sort of reinforce uh, about uh what does it mean to like live this christian life as a practice it sort of um it sort of calls calls to mind that if if eating together can be sort of like um you know, broadened out beyond the space of gathering together in church, right? So hosting and and right. and hosting meals and these sorts of things. Um, singing together seems quite ecclesial, or at least you know, if we're not imagining just going to concerts, uh, but specifically right. specifically going to church to sing together, this sort of uh, necessitates uh, our ecclesial gathering in order to sing together. I'm just curious to hear more uh, thoughts uh, on that. Yeah. Uh, so. Part of what I find really interesting and important about singing together is uh, the way, I mean, there's very few things that can just reach down into somebody's heart and put a particular squeeze on it like music can. Um, And so when, when you have music that stirs you in a certain way, and you are with that being led along with the lyrics, right? And it's it's a, it brings your whole self into devotion in ways that a lot of times, like if I just if I just read lyrics, some lyrics they're just I mean they just my jaw drops the craft of them they're wonderful lyrics, but if I sing those, it's just something completely different, right? Come thou fount of every blessing might be my go-to example on this. It always, it without fail, I'm just wrecked um, within, you know, the first couple lines. And then you do that together with others. And it's, it you know, there's a kind of ramifying effect where um, hearing, you know, my voice is not very good, but I hear other people and now my voice is being carried along with others' voices. And as, as they're being lifted up, into God's presence, I feel myself lifted up. But as I as I sing laments with them, right, and I can um, I can give voice to the sorrow and the pain that I'm feeling, or that I know others are feeling, and they're singing it with me, being carried up together with them in that too. I, I it just strikes me that singing together is such a powerful thing, and it also strikes me that it's a really it's a really crucial component of Christianity, but theologians almost never talk about it, um, right? I mean, some do. James Cone did, Howard Thurman did, but they're the rare exceptions, right? So they're not the only ones, but there's not a lot of people talking about how important singing is. But when you hang out with Christians, singing together is actually really important. If they had to if they had to choose, but I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say this. Um, if they had to choose between like having some kind of really great doctrine of perichoresis and, and getting to sing together on Sing God's Praises together every Sunday, it's not a question, right? Like Christianity is a lot more about the singing together than it is about the doctrine of perichoresis. Um Maybe that's not fair. I, I, you don't have to choose. I'm just meaning to suggest that it's really important. And and I think it should therefore be reflected in the way we try to understand Christianity. I I, I agree. I, I think it's quite important. I think uh, I think there's even some subtle theological connotations uh, mm-hmm. in, present in the New Testament that we might uh, sort of miss. Um, uh, oh. uh, like, for example, in Ephesians 5, right, where don't get drunk on wine. So obviously I'm interested in this because of the whole alcohol right. thing, right? right? Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then um, it's almost depending on the translation you read it's almost as if the what follows is is sort of uh secondary or kind of like irrelevant or just uh additional bits of kind of like wisdom but actually what follows are a handful of participles that are modifying 
the command to be filled with the spirit. And those include like speaking to one another in hymns, songs, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it also includes giving thanks, which I take to be Eucharistically uh, sort of uh, oriented, uh, mm -hmm. as, as well as submitting to one another. But what mm -hmm. I find interesting about this is the corporate nature, right? It's it's plural in in uh, orientation, uh, but, but also um, specifically worship. And so the mm -hmm. question grammatically, which I am a bit of a nerd, I, you know, as I mentioned, I teach Greek, but um, the question grammatically is how do those participles relate? Are they the result of spirit filling? In other mm -hmm. words, like w w people who are spirit filled do these things, or is it the means of spirit filling? And I'm quite inclined to the, to the latter option, mm. um, not in a, a weird mechanistic sort of way, right. but it, in the sense that God responds to his people uh, as they are gathered in worship. Um, and I just think that that is a connotation of of corporate worship and i think it's one that experientially we we i think as you said it's so it's such a powerful experience i think it's one that we can sort of intuitively recognize that something happens when we gather mm. and, and sing together uh and i think uh you know to to the mind of the author of ephesians uh who, who i like to call paul um <laughs> um it includes the filling of the divine spirit, which I just think is is really powerful, is also reflected um, uh, in the writings of a early uh, hymnist and composer in the early church named Romanos, uh, the melodist. Uh, he's writing in like the fifth or sixth century. Mm -hmm. He also describes um, in his in his hymns, um, like as part of the lyrics, uh, people being filled by the spirit from worshiping. Like in other words, mm -hmm. by means mm -hmm. of worshiping, which I just think is a uh, is a is a is a powerful way of thinking about about worship, and as you said, you know, a bit to the detriment of our systematic uh, theologies that we don't develop things like this, or reflect on this, or 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 consider, um, yeah, the the sort of specifics of worship. We might we might talk about worship or say that we were, you know. In, in our anthropology section of a systematic theology, we might mm. say we were created to glorify God, but actually, like developing sort of what worship in and in particular singing uh, mm -hmm. looks like, I think, yeah, it's woefully neglected. Hmm. I like those reflections a lot. That's really interesting. Um, I mean, I, I think you even see some reflection of what you're talking about. Um, like a lot of Christians will talk about um, like we were really filled with the spirit this morning, or this, this place is really filled with the spirit this morning. And they're talking about, um, the way people are being moved by singing together. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm not competent to uh, go toe-to-toe -to -toe on any of the grammatical fine points, uh, but I find that really interesting. I feel like we are jointly creating a new book in, in, in terms of worship right now as we're planning. So Zondervan, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> we we would appreciate any, any follow-up. Uh, you can email... You can email Dr. Hector or uh, Dr. Dunn. I'm not quite at the doctorate level yet, um, but but <laughs> but it, 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 humor aside, I, th I think um, Kevin. Um, I think one thing I, I, I appreciate you are you're doing something pretty drastic. I think it's in some of the bifurcating um, world of theologies, and you're quoting James Cone. Um, you're uh, you're you're drawing from Howard Thurman. And I think when you when you touch in on the musical worship piece, some of my own background and, yeah. and understanding of you know African American African tradition mm -hmm. uh, is the worship posture of that is more Hebraic in in its nature, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. then when we think about the Psalms, right? The Psalms, mm -hmm. uh, many of them are songs of remembrance, right? And and mm -hmm. remembrance of suffering and deliverance, right? Mm -hmm. And which is so Western kind of boogeyman where we get to suffering, right? Like yeah. we don't want to, we don't want to go to the Psalms about crushing people's bones and mm -mm. Uh, those, those elements, mm -hmm. right? Because that just doesn't sing well in many Western churches, right? And, um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and, but, but even on, uh, I think other trajectory of, uh, you know, Christians, you know, who have lived the, this history of mm -hmm. uh, embodied oppression and um, suffering, you you can even see song in a different way, right? That even the the intonation of a song uh, mm. that doesn't correlate with the words in of itself, right? 
Uh, But how the spirit moves uh, in that way where you could be talking about suffering and what people would probably state as more a uh, jubilant uh, type of key. uh, Mm -hmm. And yet they're congruent. And so that's Mm -hmm. interesting, too, to even think through Mm -hmm. um, how that brings people together. Right. Suffering healthily brings people together, which feels Mm -hmm. like a conundrum, I think, in the Western world. Mm and so it's it's interesting even to highlight that when I think of think of the movement that the the seasonal movement by which Howard Thurman lived in and, mm-hmm. and James Cone was uh, also lived in was also greatly impacted by um, mm-hmm. how that shapes mm-hmm. I think the ecclesial elements of 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 worship and singing together that mm-hmm. uh, comes back to what you're saying like in in the eschatological world uh, we will both celebrate. Uh, and also seeing um, with this understanding that there's no more tears and no more mourning, mm-hmm. but but the story of our redemption and our deliverance uh, in this present life would bring about tears and bring yeah. about mourning. Yeah. And so yeah. it's interesting to think how those bring us together um, in ways that are, I think, profoundly other than um, our clear societal world understanding. Mm-hmm. I mean, I there's... I think Zondervan should call you about this then, because I think there's something really profound in what you're saying. Uh, hearing you talk, just reflecting on it a little bit, right? The so sometimes um, our sometimes the 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 melody of the song sort of matches the lyrics, but it doesn't always, right? And I think you're right. There's a lot more that I don't I don't really get too far into this, but I think what you're saying is exactly right. There's times where the, the lyrics can be giving voice to a whole range of emotions, not all of which are going to be reflected in the melody. The melody can actually be doing things that that right. The, the melody can be lifting people up even as they're t- even as they're calling out from a downcast, downtrodden heart. They can be lifted up by a melody so that the melody can be maintaining their kind of resilience and their their sense of hopefulness and and we can be doing that together as a congregation even as i am giving voice to um this this grief or this pain that's in my heart um there is there is so much there but i think there's there's a a genius to that too um yeah i love that you just brought that up i i would love for you to think more about that and say more about that uh that seems really that seems right to me in in deep ways and these practices that you address in the book give way to things like activism you um articulate and you know as we talk about christianity as a way of life a lot of people are you know quite quite uh, happy to say that you know christianity has practical implications mm-hmm. um but not many or i should say i know plenty of people who want to say, oh, it's not political. Or they'll say like, oh, you're making this political by introducing X or Y uh, issue, right? Whether it's racism or, you know, you name it. It's like, oh, you know, just give me, just give me the Bible. Don't, don't incorporate politics here or something like that. Um, You know, this is a perspective that I think, um, clearly by my tone of voice, uh, is is a bit ridiculous. It's a bit uh, uh, unintegrated and bifurcated. And and it's a strange way to think about, as as the title of your book is, uh, Christianity as a way of life, uh, mm-hmm. that it would inform uh, all things in all areas. Could you tell us more about the activism piece, how it relates yep. to the practices, and and also specifically this notion that, uh, you know, Christianity isn't political? Yeah. I mean, so to my mind, the most basic thing isn't political or not political, but faithful, right? So what what are people being called to? What is it if if the most important thing for you is devoting your entire life to God best you can, then Sometimes, to my mind, that is going to mean doing things that are, quote-unquote, political. And 
sometimes it's going to look like different things. And activism is one of those things, but it's not the only thing, right? Sometimes it means stop being bad to people, right? Like if, if you're called to love others, as indeed we are, then you should be invested in them being treated in a way that befits their worth, their infinite worth, as someone who bears God's image. And so if you're treating people in a way that doesn't befit that worth, stop it. Beyond that, sometimes our vocations put us in a position where we have an obligation to be looking out for people. I, I don't I don't know almost anybody who doesn't think that if if some somebody's being mistreated in your classroom, you shouldn't do something about it. Or if, if, you, if you have a family, if somebody's being mistreated in your family, you shouldn't do something about it. Everybody thinks that, right? So then the question is, what about bigger kinds of things where people are being mistreated? Does, do we ever have a vocation to try to do something about it? And how do we do it? And this is another place where I'm trying to thread a few needles. Um, because I don't... I think there's a temptation to quietism. Um, right? To a kind of spiritualization of Christianity that um, doesn't strike me as doing justice to the, the full witness of scripture and, and the tradition. But I also think there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of activism that isn't necessary, that isn't exactly, uh, that takes itself to be ultimate, I think is maybe how I'll put it. Um, and so whatever it takes to make this turn out right and whatever, you know, like whatever means necessary, like I, that doesn't strike me necessarily as, uh, reflecting the sort of witness to God that one might look for in Christian activism. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I look to especially Dr. King, um, but I think I think there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom in the tradition to think about this. Um, so what does it look like to look Christian in activism? How do you how do you try to bring about change for one thing? How do you change the interests of the powerful such that it's no longer in their interests to mistreat people, to oppress people? How do you how do you loosen the grip of injustice on people well i think you know non-cooperation with evil and prophetic critique and the embodiment of alternatives those are all ways that some it strikes me really faithful christians have tried to think through what this looks like um and i think they give us some pretty good models for that so i think i think the question of whether christians should be activists i think that's just a matter of what's god calling people to um and how to do it <laughs> is also something that needs to be faithful it's not just a question of whether but how that matters to me could could you could you share more about uh, what led to the development of this book mm. was uh was there something precipitated this has this been a general interest overall like what what came to um to the writing of of this text that's a great question i'm I'm I I feel thankful that you asked it. Uh so I think there was probably two things that really pushed me to write it. Um one was a pretty strong sense that I wanted to I wanted to write systematic theology like I thought that seemed fun. Um but I wanted to write a systematic theology that would in some ways honor the Christianity of Christians as opposed to one that had principally other theologians as its interlocutors, right? I, I interact with theologians all over the place, right? But but I really wanted to be trying to get a grip on 
what does Christianity mean to regular folks? What do they identify as the Christianity that they're trying to practice? And yeah, try to honor that, try to do justice to that. So that's 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 one thing, and that's part of why practices become so central. Um, on the other hand, I had a sense that um, theology is in a pretty precarious place institutionally. Um, there are fewer and fewer places where one can, you know, find institutional support for doing theology. Universities are one of them, but there's not a lot of them left who want to support it. But I felt like I needed to think pretty carefully about what does it mean to do this, to do theology in a secular university like the University of Chicago? Um, how can I do this in a way that's legible to colleagues across the university and to central committees of the sort who are, you know, I, I not just for me, but for my students or people who come after me, how can they present themselves to hiring committees that might have no theologians on them in such a way that they could see, ah, I recognize this as roughly the kind of thing somebody would do at a university. And I had to spend a lot of time thinking that through. And if and one of the ways I've tried to explain this is it's it's contextual theology, right? So a university is a very particular kind of context. And like any context, there's the question of what does it look like to be faithful in this context, right? And so this is a very contextual theology for a university like mine. And so I was trying to do both of these things, right? So honor the everyday kind of Christians who I run into all the time and do something that would be recognizable to my colleagues in a university as contributing to the, the the kind of endeavor that that a university is committed to. I really like how in some ways that um, articulation of it that you're sort of modeling uh, by by writing what the content is sort of uh, you know articulating mm -hmm. and so that's that's really great. Um, as a final question, to wrap up this conversation, um, where are some places that this research is taking you next as you mm -hmm. uh, develop some of this, uh, maybe refine it, perhaps mm -hmm. if there was anything that uh, you uh, would like to tweak uh, uh, about the book <laughs> or or extend into other areas? We'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in terms of tweaks, I you could do an archaeology of this book. You can kind of tell which parts were written earlier and which parts were written later. Or at least I really can. Um, I think this book taught me how to write it as I was writing it. Um, and so I find my footing more as I go on. That's not sequentially, right? Um, but I can really easily identify the parts that I wrote toward the end. And <laughs> the, parts that, the parts toward the beginning have more of that... Uh, charming insurance manual quality that uh, my <laughs> friends have teased me about. Um, so hopefully I've become a better writer and have a better sense of how I want to tackle things. But uh, specifically, I'm I'm working on a, a book now, a short book. Uh, I'm calling it The Virtues of a Meaningful Life. And it's a rethinking of faith, hope, and love and the role that they play in... Um, I mean, it, this, it's very much of a piece with this book, right? But it's about how we can be, um, find and create meaning in our lives and how faith, hope, and love help us with that. Um, they help us see our lives in light of something bigger and orient our lives towards something bigger. And that's if you, if you read memoirs and if you read some of the psychology literature on meaning of life stuff, like those are two of the most important components of that. And so drawing on, yeah, the Christian tradition to think further about that. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on next. Well, we will definitely have to have you on to chat, <laughs> chat about that, that uh, chat about that book. I have, uh, I have a lot of interest in uh, faith, hope, and love. Not, not, not just because I'm, I'm a Christian. I think we all should. Um, mm. But I've, uh, I've taught, uh, taught a course on faith, hope, and love, specifically from like a pop cultural lens, sort yeah, of like, yeah. sort of like doing a theology of faith, hope, and love as articulated by films, music, uh, uh, literature. Uh, 
sort of comics, a, a lot of different, a lot of different sort of pop cultural uh, sources. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a, a long term writing project that I have that I probably cool. won't won't complete for some time because uh, I'd want to you know just continue of watching and listening to all sorts yeah. of pop cultural pieces to sort of fill out this this project but uh, uh i'm i'm just very interested in thinking you know further about uh these uh, theological virtues and so i'm really really interested in that uh project of yours well thanks for the interest and what a great class i want i want to take this class <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did i did have a lot of fun teaching it was one of uh, i'm sure you did one of my favorite electives and i'll be circling back to it uh again once uh you know there's enough fresh students who haven't taken right, it yet right. uh but uh but yes good times well well thank you uh uh kevin for your um for your time and for this uh wonderful conversation uh about christianity as a way of life and we hope everybody checks out your your new book Thank you so much. I I'm really grateful to both of you and I've enjoyed myself. I hope you have too. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. 